Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me back. This will be Sermon 6 in uh, a series that we started a long time ago called The Church and Science. And I think um, we're going to sort of do it the traditional church on Melrose way. If you don't mind, open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58. We're going to touch on a number of other passages, but those are central to the topic for today. And I'll say that um, the original title for this sermon was pretty unimaginatively three points of view. And then as I started working on that, it became two points of view. And it currently is now a point of view. And the title for this point of view is, What Do You Mean Nothing? So this is a sermon about nothingness. And I wanted to be able to say that this was a sermon about nothing, but um, Seinfeld already got that one many years ago. So this is a sermon about nothingness. And since this is church and this is a sermon, and it is about nothingness or nothing, um, what we're going to do is we're going to visit a couple examples in scripture that use literally the word nothing, nothingness. And I'll say at the outset that um, this is not really essential to the topic, but I feel it's a little bit obligatory and it will kind of warm us up maybe. Um, But by the way, to find the word nothing or nothingness um, literally very much depends on the, sorry, very much depends on the translation that you're looking at, as you can imagine. And there's a reason for that. And so I've sort of gone kind of far and wide. Um, Two examples, nothing too particularly um, challenging in and of itself. The first one requires that we go to the Weymouth uh, New Testament. And and I know we don't have the Weymouth New Testament here. If you're really energetic and enthusiastic, you might be able to find one pretty easily on that on your iPhone or smart device or whatever, but I'll just read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. For so it stands written, I will exhibit the nothingness of the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will bring to naught. Example of the word nothing. Second example, uh, this one's from the Common English Bible, and, and people will know from the other five sermons that... Um, I have been able to successfully stammer through or with some degree of success. Um, I typically use a common English Bible. It's my preference. It's just very easy to read. Um, and I know that that's not the conventional um, handout Bibles that we have here. Um, we're international here at the um, Church on Melrose. Um, but this comes from the common English Bible. In almost any translation you get of Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, um, almost all of them will use the word nothing. Lord God, you created heaven and earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In both of these cases, the language is literary. Okay. It's not about the word nothing. It's about something like the word nothing. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians from Weymouth New Testament, Um, We could just as easily substitute the word ineffective, just for example, for the word nothingness, the nothingness of the wisdom of the wise. 
And in fact, other translations, um, in a much more provocative way, have as much, and they'll say, um, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In the second example, from Jeremiah chapter 32, the statement, nothing is too powerful for you, is a colorful way of saying, you can do anything. And this is exactly what we get if we were to look at the contemporary English version. Okay, so this is not a literary or linguistic review. Um, there's a point here that can move us forward, and it is more central to the topic of nothing. <clears throat> Nowhere in God's word will you ever find an existential reference to an absolute, in and of itself, nothing. And I don't know this because I have scoured every possible reader or concordance or every possible translation. I know it's true. And by the way, I also don't know it's true because I can't assert a more general assumption that people never ever generally refer to a nothingness that exists in and of itself, because as we will see, they most certainly do. I'm going to read Genesis 1.1, and I'm not going to read it just because everybody knows it and it sounds good. I'm going to read it because it's right on topic, and then after this we'll go, get into more substantive verses that may or may not have your Bibles open to, Exodus chapter 3, and then the Gospel of John chapter 8. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, uh, and I'm going to parenthetically, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. I'm reading, by the way, from, I mean, to keep switching it up, King James, 21st century. In the beginning, God did something. God created. Okay. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Okay, so just as a setup, we know this, this is pretty well known. This is um, kind of Moses is doing the why me thing, right? So Moses has been pulled out of his normal circumstance and He's communicating with God now, and he is learning about this charge that God has for him, which is absolutely enormous. And so we get this dialogue here. Moses said to God, If I now come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they are going to ask me, What's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? Verse 14. God parenthetically, Elohim, said to Moses, I am Aheia, who I am Aheia. Aheia, Asher, Aheia. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God continued, Say to the Israelites, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. Okay. In verse 14, we have two sort of, what well, we have God arising, the interpretation of God arising from two Hebraic terms. Aheya, Elohim. Elohim, we know, is a more generic, if I shall say, a generic reference to God or a God. And this is not something that is in the international version. It's in the common English version. Um, in verse 13, 
Moses responds to God when God says, the God of your ancestors sent me to you. Moses speculates that that's what he's going to be telling them. What is God, how is he supposed to respond? They are going to ask me, Moses says, they are going to ask me, what's this God's name? What's this God's name? So you sort of get the impression that what's this God's name? So that apparently, with, although it's not said here, that the Israelites have had quite an earful about this one God or that one God. Like, what is, what, okay, this one God you're talking about now? Um, okay, so I am Ahaya, the self-existent, unconditional God. Self-existent, unconditional. And by the way, if you buy into, and I'm not an expert on, on Hebrew, and I'm certainly not an expert on the history of Hebrew, um, if you buy into the proto-Hebrew perspective, Yahweh, Yahawah, He exists, Yahawah. And then on to John chapter 8, verse 58. Again from the Common English Bible. I assure you, Jesus replied, before Abraham was, I am. The extant Greek, ego ami, I am. Self-existent. And there's a lot more stuff going on there. We'll visit this in a moment. By the way, we start at the very beginning. It's sort of like we have bookends on a book, the book covers. We have Genesis, the very beginning of Genesis. Then we have God interceding to liberate his people in Exodus. And then we get to the Gospel of John, you, know, you turn a big giant block of pages, and then you end up in Revelation and you get a re-echo of the exact same sentiments. It's interesting that, the, that these um, references to God's character as being transcendental actually sort of transcend the physical canon that we have of the Bible. And, um, in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and was and is coming, the Almighty. A little bit later in Revelation, getting very close to the back cover, Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Okay, so that's it. So in and of itself, a, a... sermon about nothing and we have examined a few passages that tell us about fundamental nature of God and it is my hope that without having to explicitly say it although we will um, that that is sort of a self-contained collection of evidence that through the opening of Genesis and through Moses' dialogue in chapter 3 of Exodus and the Gospel of John, and by the way, this appears in other places too, um, and then in Revelation, that we have a pretty clear sense of who God is. And we also have a sense that in Exodus, we are told that not only is God I am, but that is the name that people will know him by. His people will know him by. His people will know him by the name I am, that God is a self-existent God. So like a, I don't know if this metaphor works here, so like a frog on a lily pad, we're going to hop from the current lily pad and we are going to hop on onto another lily pad. 
And this lily pad that we're going to land on here um, opens with a quote from H.L. Mencken. It is not materialism that is the chief curse of the world, as pastors teach, but idealism. Men get into trouble by taking their visions and hallucinations too seriously. Yeah, the first thing is, is that I don't, I don't believe that pastors actually teach that materialism is the chief curse of the world. I think that nowadays, I think that that would be a little bit too myopic. Maybe, maybe in the, during the seminal days of the Industrial Revolution or something like that, that was a little bit more, you know, seemed like more of an uh, egregious sort of kind of uh, state of affairs that all of a sudden everybody like wants stuff and we can manufacture all this stuff. I don't know that that's necessarily true in the 20th and 21st century, but of course Mencken is making a point. And there's a connection here, so we'll build up to that. Ideals, we call ideals, Mencken is referring to when he talks about ideals being a much more toxic state of theme of thinking in the modern world than materialism. He's talking about, on the surface, he's talking about ethical idealism. But ethical idealism and philosophical idealism, sort of classical idealism, the idea that, that there's, um, you, you can ask questions about what it means for someone to perceive a thing, and does a thing have an existence outside of somebody's ability to perceive it? And materialism, in the classic sense, when you talk metaphysically about what is stuff, and materialism in the modern sense, in the consumer sense, like I want stuff. All of these ideas have a common and unmistakable current, and that is the ever-present assumption of the personalization of stuff. Or, if you prefer, a fallen drive to personalize anything and everything. And here in 2018, you can personalize yourself. You can, as they say, rebrand yourself. And you can find dozens of books out there to uh, help you with the undertaking. While Tom Wolfe referred to the 1970s as the me decade, the BBC referred to the entire 20th century as the century of the self. As telling as the thousands and thousands of books that are called self-help books, say over the past 150 years since there was such a thing as a self-help book, as telling as the sheer volume of that literature is, even more telling has been a lot of the social commentary. Um, Matt Remon had wrote that it's easy to note just how selfish the self-help book has become. There's mounds of literature that span the corners of the religious, religious motifs, spiritual motifs, secular motifs that purport to locate purpose and meaning in the reader's life. And while caregivers, you may or may not be familiar with this, may experience vicarious, something called vicarious trauma, we are encouraged to view things vicariously for the weight of possible edification, which is essentially how modern advertising works. And as some literature has suggested over the past 20 years, um, a person can even find, evidently, 
the church that's right for them. Not just a church that's right for them, the church that's right for them. This theme, that is this theme that we understand the modern age as being punctuated by self-focus, is not a stranger to um, parishioners here. This is a theme that comes up. It is a major topic. It is a part of the doctrine of the church on Melrose. It is um, something that is discussed and has been brought up from across all, the entire spectrum of academic and intellectual uh, examination. Um, it's certainly not just relegated to Christian thinking, although the critique is very real in Christian thought. Um, it is something that has come up in secular thinking, that there has been this metamorphosis of culture that is, to reuse the term I used a second ago, punctuated by self-focus. And if you want to say it easily, and this is sort of cutting, trying to attempt to sort of smush all the social examination and analysis and psychological examination, examination and analysis of how such a thing could come to be, um, you could try to say, as I have here in a two-sentence paragraph, a natural consequence of rationalism, we talked about rationalism last time a little bit, is the widespread internalization of the preeminence of the self. That's easy to say, but this spans culture. Um, it's spread from politics, where we have some of the thinking, um, and Damon had mentioned this. I have nothing against John Locke. And there are people, historians, that will argue that if it weren't for John Locke, there would not be any United States of America. Um, but the whole notion of that you can sort of idea—here's the term again—idealize this, this thing where you talk about society where everybody is equal, and now we don't have this parochial or an aristocracy. Um, it's part of the sort of the political thinking now. Since the Enlightenment, since rationalism, this widespread sort of um, acceptance of sort of rationalism as a movement, the thinking, and certainly we see this. Certainly. I would say unequivocally we see this in the illusion that technology brings us where we can imagine a mastery over nature. And technology sort of gives us this illusion of mastery over nature. So it's not necessarily that outrageous to understand where and how our thinking, where we think about externally or we think about empathically about things or places, and we now think, um, that everything is sort of a component of our experience. So everything starts and stops with the self. And I think that, um, and I would invite someone who knows a lot more about H.L. Mencken than I do, um, I would invite some criticism if, if um, I might be wrong here, but I think that in his comment about the toxicity of idealism over materialism was far more profound than most people give him credit for. And people give him a lot of credit. Ethical idealism is punchy, and it's been in vogue for probably about 200 years. But that's not really what he was talking about, or that's not all he was talking about. You see, if a person believes that stuff, material, is only knowable through the mind, or if you prefer, it only has value that can be attributed to it, by what it does for the individual or the mind of the individual, then what does that imply? No mind or no self, no stuff. And if you have no stuff, 
What do you have? You have nothing. This is the cultural narrative. The cultural narrative, the modern cultural narrative, oozes with this thing at its core, nothing. It is a real thing unto itself, and it evidently occurs inevitably for a person when they themselves get pulled from the equation. Therefore, nothing is to be dreaded, combated, feared. We know the narrative from the perspective that, say, modern, or at least in the past, I don't know, 50 years, since sort of the postmodern movement. We understand the narrative, the modern narrative, in terms of the self. But the engine that drives that narrative, the engine that drives that narrative is based on the absence of stuff. This is exactly opposed to what we were just told in the reading in Genesis and Exodus and then in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus said, I was here before Abraham, I am, I am. What was the reaction of the establishment? They were infuriated. They wanted to stone him. And Jesus had to scram. Ego ami, I am. There should be no ambiguity about the conversation that Moses had with Ehiyeh. God is preeminent, unconditioned, self-existent. Genesis 1.1 does not say, in the beginning, God suddenly appeared and decided to create stuff. And when Moses asks, who should he tell that those in bondage, that God has planned from the beginning to liberate, who sent him, the response is, I am. And God's people know God by that name. So, what's the ultimate punchline here? And it's easy to get caught up in the popular narrative. It's, it's almost impossible to break away from the culture in which we're immersed. But I think on this matter, there can be absolutely no compromise. And that is, there is no such thing as nothing. God exists. I am. The marvel of a thing, or the marvel of stuff, is not owed to the personal pleasure that you might be able to drive, derive from it at some particular point in time, some particular place. And it certainly is not derived from some philosophical or constructed opposition between stuff and a complete absence of stuff. That is not how stuff gets its miraculous essence because everything is miraculous. The marvel of stuff is owed to the creative power and the grace of God.
there is no such thing as nothing. And just to close this out, um, if that's not particularly convincing, um, consider five words from Matthew 28.20. God speaking to his followers. God speaking to his disciples. I am with you always. Let's pray together. Father, we're so very grateful for this place and come to this building. Your faithfulness, your servant Damon, who every Sunday kept the church moving forward. We're very thankful for Dan and Lonnie and the Greenholds for being a part of it and to making this time together happen and to reveal yourself through wonderful instruction, tireless instruction, I think maybe even at times sort of thankless work by a lot of people. We're very grateful for the sacrifices that you make and not only fulfilling our needs but giving us a luxury of things to fulfill our wants even much more so than we deserve. As we go forward this week give us grateful hearts give us forgiving hearts in the way that you have forgiven us and forgive us from moment to moment things that we omit things that we commit. Give us forgiving hearts. Protect us. And place in our hearts a desire to seek your will at every moment. And to always know that you are In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.